Kant took up the task of developing a systematic metaphysics at a time when the smart money was that it was a waste of time. Science had progressed to the point, mathematics had progressed to the point where the world of thought, the Enlightenment world, knew what it was doing and the metaphysicians actually should just trouble themselves. So the state of metaphysics was something of a wreckage. And many of the wiser heads thought that it could be safely regarded entirely. And so I usually like to begin these lectures with Kant's insistence that even as you set out to ignore metaphysics, you're probably engaged in some form of metaphysical speculation yourself. He says that the human mind will ever give up metaphysical research is as little to be expected as that we should prefer to give up breathing altogether to avoid inhaling impure air. There will therefore always be metaphysics in the world. Nay, everyone, especially every man of reflection, will have it and for want of a recognized standard will shape it for himself after his own pattern. So you're going to do this whether you like it or not and one of the objectives of the critique is to have us do it the right way. The results, as you very well know, are mixed. Not only mixed, but many regard the project as a dead letter. Jonathan Bennett, in the Philosophical Review some years ago, wrote this. He said, most of the critique of pure reason is prima facie dead because prima facie dependent on wholly indefensible theories. So the commentator's dominant problem is to display the life below the surface. Now, I think that this autopsy report uh, was surely premature because in the 40 years since, since Bennett reached that conclusion, don't ask how many hundreds and even thousands of dissertations, journal articles, books, treatises, presentations from lecterns have been addressed to this alleged corpse. It's a case of mistaken identity, I should think. I think the dead body that Bennett found was a body that he had misidentified. But Kant faced this in his own time, after the first edition, which came out in 1781. It was obvious in no time that both friends and critics systematically misunderstood what he was trying to convey. Kant reacted to criticism with his characteristic, intemperate, frustrated impatience. He refers to, quote, incompetent judges who, while they would have an old name for every deviation from their perverse though common opinion, and never judge of the spirit of philosophical nomenclature, but cling to the letter only, are ready to put their own conceits in the place of well-defined notions and therefore deform and distort them. But his critics did have a leg to stand on and if you've been wading through the first critique you'll be sympathetic with the frustration of critics who are often not clear as to just what not only what Kant means but what the purpose of the entire project is. What is the project of the first critique? What's he trying to do? It's not enough rather airily to say, put metaphysics on a scientific foundation, because we've yet to define metaphysics or come to some agreement as to what Kant would mean by scientific, let alone putting something on a foundation. 
Sebastian Gardner, who has provided nothing less than a guidebook to the first critique, Sebastian Gardner says this. This is all by way of encouraging you to approach the book with great optimism and cheerfulness. Sebastian Gardner says, virtually every sentence of the critique presents difficulties. Attempts have been made to provide commentaries comprehensively illuminating, uh, com comprehensively illuminating each individual section of the work, and some of these run to several volumes without getting near its end. And then one commentator, com noting what it's like to read the Critique of Pure Reason, says it is, quote, a disagreeable task because the work is dry, obscure, opposed to all ordinary notions, and long-winded as well. Who said that? Kant. <laughs> In the prolegomena, this is, his, this is his reflection on the Critique of Pure Reason. A disagreeable task, dry, obscure, opposed to all ordinary notions, and long-winded as well. So you should be very enthusiastic now about taking up the first critique based on these judgments. Kant got to this uh, uh, during his pre-critical years. He was a highly published scholar. His interests were wide-ranging. They, they included issues in law and in science, and particularly astronomy. Uh, he's, he is a scholar of consequence, and he would have been a notable scholar had he never taken up this project at all. He gets to it through a rather winding path. Uh, a lot of it is hit and miss. You can tell from the correspondence he has with friends and admirers that he's heading toward the critique of pure reason, but he's not quite sure what the model should be and, and, the, and the best way to get there. He's, he's living in a divided world. He's living in a world of Newton and Leibniz, a world of British empiricism focused on observation and measurement, and a world of traditional rationalist approaches to difficult problems, where if you're the right person sitting in the right armchair, you should be able to deduce the facts of the world. And Kant is trying to be at home and even reconcile those two worlds. The first sign of, of real progress comes ten years before the first edition of the first critique. He's writing a letter to Marcus Hertz, former student, a doctor, an interesting fellow in his own right. Uh, Marcus Hertz, I think, was the first medical school faculty member to admit and teach Jewish students uh, at a Prussian university. And Hertz himself did a fair amount of writing, and he was a very loyal, faithful correspondent uh, of Kant's, uh, deeply interested in Kant as a person and in his work. And Kant, Kant was rather self-disclosing in his letters to Hertz. He says to Hertz that he's, well, he's, he's on to it now. It's 1771. He's working on something he's tentatively titled On the Limits of Sensibility and Reason. So we can see that this is uh, uh, forecasting what the major work will be. He describes himself in his approach to these subjects as suffering from a mania for systematizing. 
you may have noticed those clinical signs if you've been thumbing through the critique of pure reason. A veritable mania for system. If the thing were outlined to any more molecular level, it would be a book of outlines, do you see? And in the German, it's much more outlined. He expresses an urgency in his letters to Hertz. He sees time running out. He's still not quite sure how to get to this. Well, what is the question? The question is how far our knowledge can reach, the extent to which we can rely on our senses and the extent to which we can rely on reason. He recognizes that the ultimate arbiter in matters of this kind has always been human rationality, but no one has taken the time to test the measuring instrument. That is, if the gold standard for whether an argument succeeds or not is rationality itself, one has to assess the instrument. How good a thermometer is it? What does its nature bring to the table as it sets about to make judgments about its own productions? And Kant, I think, is quite original in that regard. He understands that the senses and reason are both limited, but limited how? Now, um, what was the project? If someone were to ask you, as one day you will be asked if you're doing philosophy here, one of those easy questions, what was Kant's project in the first critique? You have three hours. What, what, will, what will you say that the project is? Uh, Karl Americh's who is a distinguished Kant scholar, sees contemporary Kant scholarship as giving us three alternatives. Uh, Amrix adds, adds a fourth. First, to develop a systematic metaphysics serving as a refutation of skepticism. So the gray eminence here, of course, is Hume, who awakened Kant from his dogmatic slumber and one certainly can read the first critique as a sustained defense of our epistemic resources against Hume-type skepticism, which is the most developed form of what might be called the empiricist path to skepticism. Now, what, what is it about empiricism that, that culminates in, in skepticism, in, in some form of skepticism? On the traditional empiricist account, we do not have direct access to the facts of the external world. That is, we do not experience externality directly, but only immediately. Not immediately, but immediately, because between us and the external world are those, what do you call them? Oh yes, sense organs. And so the question is how faithfully they report what is going on out there. Well, to raise the question, how faithful is the sensory report of the external world, is to assume that you have some reliable, non-sensory way of answering that question. That's the box you can't get out of. And so there is always this gap between reality, as it might possibly be known by some non-human creature, and reality as empirically sampled by the senses whose limitations and distortions are very well known, 
but not perfectly classified or categorized or, or measured. So there is that problem. You do the best you can. Uh, how good are the senses? Well, we got to the moon and came back, so they're obviously reporting something reasonably well. But if you're serious about epistemology, then you have reservations about all knowledge grounded in sense experience. So there's that problem. Call it uh, the lock problem, or call it whatever problem you like. It, it, it's, it's one of the consequences, certainly, of a radical empiricism. And there are gambits that can be invoked to, uh, uh, apart from Kantian ones, you could adopt a, a form of realism, a Thomas Reed type realism, according to which the alleged gap is not a gap at all. In fact, you see what is there. Your knowledge of the external world is immediate, not mediated. And I shall have a few things to say about that, maybe even today and surely in the course of these lectures. Well, you might also say that the project of the first critique is to develop a metaphysical system that will provide the right kind of foundation for science. And I, I, I lean in the direction of Kant attempting to develop an argument that will ground the objectivity of science. That is to say, Kant is not trying to redeem the wisdom of the plain man. He recognizes the errors that ordinary thought is would be prone to. But he also recognizes the profound success of the Newtonian project, the 17th century project, the age of Newton and Galileo and company. And this surely can't be based on iffy and, and, and epistemically chancy Hume-type uh, uh, vulnerabilities. So what metaphysical foundation at once respects the achievements of science and provides a grounding so that science itself understands the basis upon which its claims ultimately depend? One might argue that that is the project of the first critique. Americh gives us a third option, which is the enduring problem. He calls it the enduring problem of ontology. Now what is ontology? Well you all know what ontology is, you're philosophy students. Willard Van Orman Quine says the nice thing about ontology is that it can be defined exhaustively by three monosyllabic English words. What is there? Well, what is there? Now Locke, surely one of the fathers of modern modern day British empiricism, was at pains to argue that the endless metaphysical disputes about the real essence of things were idle to begin with because we lack the capacity to know the real essence of anything. All we have is what Locke referred to as the nominal essence of things. It's the way we, in virtue of the way we perceive and, 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 and cogitate, it's the way we come to label things, people and carpets and light bulbs and computers. We give things names based on general characteristics and it's largely the, 
the shared experiences of a community that settles on the meaning of a term. As for the real essence of things, that's beyond the reach, beyond, beyond the reach of our, our very senses. Now, how does Locke come to a conclusion like that? Well, he is an older friend of that very clever young fellow, uh, Isaac Watts-his-name. And according to Newton, uh, ultimate reality is corpuscular. That is to say, the ultimate material basis of everything is beyond our visual capabilities. So the real essence of, you know, this is how Locke spins out the particular theory of mind that he advances in an essay concerning the human understanding. Uh, what are ideas? Ideas are something fabricated out of elementary sensations. Well, how does that work? Well, elementary sensations are very much like the corpuscular elements of uh, mind, do you see? Now, by a process of association, these elementary sensations are pulled together to form elementary ideas. And what is that process of association like? It's like gravitational forces that pull together corpuscles to form more complex bodies. So Locke is already giving us something of a Newtonian theory of mind. And on that account, of course we can't know the real essence of things. No, no, even a bug can't know the real essence of things. The real essence of things is something very small. But that's not the level at which we examine things. We examine things at this level, and at this level we give things names based on what? Based on the use we make of them and the traffic that we have with them in actual life. Well, this then does create something of an ontological problem. The problem is, all right, we've got these nominal essences, these things we've given names to, but what really is there? And in case you're hearing something of a bat squeak of Kantian noumena uh, sneaking in at this point, you're, you're, you're hearing aptly, you're hearing aptly that there is an aspect of reality which is inferable but not knowable. And the Kantian noumena are not entirely removed from the Lockean real essences. Oh, I can almost hear Kant scholars screaming in protest. They, they usually take something for that. Uh. Now, Karl Americh uh, argues that Kant was aware of all three of these uh, issues, but he finally settled on a modest fourth option, which Amrix refers to as the transcendental option, that would unearth and delineate the conditions necessary for both the scientific and the manifest images of the world, the transcendental option. I will get to Kant and his neologistic use of transcendental a little a little later well Kant says this is at B10 when one's reason has learned completely to understand its own power in respect of objects which can be presented to it in experience uh, 
It should easily be able to determine with completeness and certainty the extent and the limits of its attempted employment beyond the bounds of experience. Once reason sees what it is doing with the input, if I can use that horrid language, it's because that thing was so difficult to turn off today. I'm going to start talking about inputs. I'm sure I am. Andy, stop me before I sin again. Yes, all right. Once, once reason has a way of reckoning what it does with the contents of experience, how it works on the contents of experience, half the muddle is taken care of already, and this is why we need a critique, a critical assessment of how reason operates, what its limits, what its limits are. Kant raises a very interesting question, which I think is probably the best way into the first critique. He raises a question in the prolegomena. The question is, how is nature possible? How is nature possible? Think about this. He defines nature as the existence of things so far as it is determined according to universal laws. Now what is he getting at with this? Look, here we sit, well you sit, I stand. Here we stand and sit in a veritable hurricane of stimulation. Showers of quanta Sounds which, if you were very attentive, you would begin to hear. Listen. See. Things you're touching. Surfaces that you think are hard, though they're not. Well, they're hard, but they're not what you think. You've got this tremendous bath of stimulation. Disconnected. How bad is it? Well, the olfactory epithelial cells of the canine will respond to the dissipation of one molecule of fatty acid. Do you see? This is why Argos detects Odysseus, but the minute he gets within smelling range, say, there's Odysseus pretending to be me. And there's Argos, who spots him after all these years and dies. I mean, the, the very fact of Odysseus's survival shocks him so. So Argos picks up the smell. Your dog will pick you up maybe a third of a mile away without wind. Do you see? The best studies of energy at the threshold of human vision indicate that if we can successfully get two or three quanta to a retinal cone, it will excite a visual response. You generally have to bang the cornea with about 150 of them, because half of what arrives at the cornea is reflected back, and then there's more reflection off the anterior surface of the lens, etc., etc. But if you can get a few to the retina, you'll excite a visual response. Audition is sensitive at the level of Brownian motion. If you haven't done any physics, may I say to you, that is a very low volume. Since most of you have blown out your auditory mechanism with what you 
refer to as music, you don't have to worry about hearing anything at the level of Brownian motion. You'll be lucky if you hear a streetcar coming, bearing down on you. But the auditory system is... Well, you see the problem, don't you? You've got all that going on and hitting a system that's responsive to just about everything. How out of that morass do you get tables and chairs and people and symphonies and rules of law and trees and agricultural principles and shipping vessels, etc.? How do you get the law-governed world of science, given that, that rash, that epidemic, of sensory experiences. What makes that possible? And Kant is satisfied that empiricism doesn't even have a way of addressing the question, let alone settling it. The human being as a passive recipient to these tidal waves of stimulation would, in the words of Sir Thomas Brown, in that's a wonderful passage in Religio Medici, where Thomas Brown refers to one as staring about with a gross rusticity. Well, we'd go through life staring about with a gross rusticity. What was that? Oh, God, what was that? Oh, what was that? You see? As opposed to the lunar excursion model and coming back to Earth, orbiting the moon. Etc. How is all that possible? And Kant is going to argue that all that is possible because of what we bring to this otherwise tidal wave of stimulations. The order that we impose on it. That the knowledge we have in fact is a reflection of the very rational and perceptual principles that operate as we confront the world. Now you say to yourself, well, for goodness sake, what's new in that? Here's what's new in that. Anyone taking the, that part of the empiricist story according to which our knowledge of the external world is never immediate but mediate recognizes that we are imposing some kind of effect on whatever it is that gets to us. That's old hat. Nemo discensit bis in idem fluminem. No one ever steps into the same river twice. Everything's in flux, do you see? The trick that Kant has to pull off is how to save, in light of all that, how to save what I prefer to think of as the scientific image from rank subjectivity. That's the burdensome part of the task to acknowledge what we are doing by way of constructing a lawful reality and at the same time saving the resulting image from, as I say, rank subjectivity. Now, he wants to save philosophy from something else. Next week I shall go into a little more detail on this. A number of scholars have wondered why Kant is so harsh in the prolegomena in his treatment of the Scottish common sense school, the school of Reed, Oswald, Beattie, 
and others. And I think Manfred Keen has, has the right answer to that. Uh, Kant is part of a war within German philosophy. It, it has whiskers. It, it was there before Kant was even a student. And, and the war is between those who would make philosophy a systematic, scientific in that sense of systematic, subject, and those who would attempt to reconcile uh, philosophy to the ordinary understandings of the ordinary person. Indeed, reconcile philosophy to the claims of religion in such a way as to appeal to persons of ordinary perception and judgment. This gives rise really to two rather distinct schools of philosophy within the German intellectual world. The Schulphilosophie, which is the academic philosophy that Kant will defend all of his life, and the popular philosophy, which is, as the term suggests, something much more accessible to ordinary sensibilities. Kant, I think, pegged the Scottish common sense school as so close to the popular philosophy as to put some distance between it and himself. This is the only explanation for the uh, rather trivializing reference to Reed, Oswald, uh, and Beattie, because there's much in Kant that is redolent of Reedian common sense philosophy. So a few words about Reed. Um, if Thomas Reed were alive and thriving, to, well, he wouldn't be thriving today because he was 54 years old before his first book came out, which means he would have been let go about 25 years before he had any occasion to write anything. Uh, he wasn't a plotter. He, he was careful, thoughtful. Probably the scientifically most prepared mind of the period. He knew the math. He knew the. He was an expert in geometry. He was an expert in. Well, I could go on about about Reed. We, we've rediscovered Reed, long forgotten. I think the first uh, uh, paper that I published on Reed was 1978, and good scholars would look you in the eye and say, "Thomas, who?" Well, that's no longer case. Reed's uh, Inquiry into the Human Mind is a book you can take to the beach. You, you will enjoy it. It's well written. It's humorous in places. Reed's concern is that philosophical skepticism will create a wreckage out of philosophy itself. He's particularly concerned with the influence that Hume's philosophy is likely to have. Not because it startles, but because it makes virtually no contact with the successful dimensions of life. That is to say, everything about which Hume raises a skeptical challenge is something that must be taken for granted in all of the ordinary affairs of life. And Reed works Hume against himself in this regard. If you, if you read Hume on causality, in, in the treatise. And mind you, if Hume awakened Kant, it wasn't the treatise, because although the treatise comes before the inquiry, the treatise was not available to Kant. C 
Kant read Hume's inquiry, but not the treatise, which I think is one of the reasons why he, he never got caught up in the personal identity issue, which is so fully explored in the treatise, not so much at all really in the inquiry. But what is, what is Hume arguing for regarding causality? Hume gives us the, the you know, this, uh, thing. I see before me uh, on a billiard table uh, two balls, one moves, it hits the other, the other moves, quote, I must own, I, I cannot see some third term betwixt them. Ball one moves, hits ball two, ball two moves. What is it that Hume can't see between those events? He can't see a cause. He can't see a cause, so where is causality? Causality isn't on the billiard table. Causality is a habit of the mind fabricated out of repeated experiences. Thus, whenever two events are constantly conjoined in experience, it becomes habitual for us to assume that one causally brings about the other. And since this is an habitual feature of our own mental machinery, which after all could be other than what it is, Hume reaches the rather startling conclusion, quote, that anything may be the cause of anything. That is, you could reconstitute sentient life in such a way that the causal connections would be understood in radically different ways. This just happens to be the way we do it. And then Hume assures us that, of course, when he leaves the privacy of his study and goes out into the light of day, he thinks the way ordinary people think, that this is a philosophical insight on his part. Reed has a bit of fun with that. He says, so you see then, Mr. Hume's philosophy is very much like a hobby horse, which a man, when he is ill, can keep home with him and ride to his contentment. But just in case he should bring it into the marketplace, his friends would quickly impanel a jury and confiscate his estates and have the solicitude never to leave him alone. Now, what Reed wants to make clear is that there are certain first principles on which all thought depends. These are principles of common sense, he says, which we are under an obligation to take for granted in all of the ordinary affairs of life. Quote, even the lowly caterpillar will crawl across a thousand leaves until it finds the one that's right for its diet. It does not do this by way of metaphysical speculation. In fact, 99 times in a hundred, the most decisive moves we make, the initiatives we take, are non-deliberative. You will not be deliberating the movements associated with riding a bike, getting a forkful of something into your mouth, picking up the phone. These, it's not just the picking up of the phone, it's understanding that whatever laws were operating that gave the telephone weight yesterday are still operating. Do you see that the laws, well, Reed didn't know about internal combustion engines, but, but if you, you go out in the morning and the car doesn't start, your first thought is not, my goodness, 
They've suspended the laws of the internal combustion. No, your, your first assumption is there's something wrong with the car. And that assumption, it, it's not something that you sort of grudgingly reach on the basis of it. It is a necessary part of functioning. You, you might see this as almost a kind of pre-Darwinian insight into what it is creatures of a given time and a given nature must take for granted to get across the street. Now, what Reed wants to argue is that a philosophy that officially opposes this, that holds up before a rational being the spectacle of its most basic conceptions being fatally, philosophically flawed, is a philosophy that's going to have a very, very brief shelf life. People will look at it, and they'll smile at the cleverness of the person who advanced it, and then they will get on with the business of life. But Reedian principles of common sense have a kind of cousinship with some of the apparatus that you will see Kant developing under the pure categories of the understanding and under the core principles of perception. So that's a rather long-winded way of saying that there are some Reedian anticipations of Kant. And then the question is, since Kant didn't read English, did he read Reed? And I do want to say that uh, Kant, by the way, took some pride in the fact that his ancestry was Scottish, that the name Kant itself is a corruption of a Scottish name. And um, we know how avidly he pursued the productions of the Scottish school because these in redacted form were being made available in German translations very, very quickly. Uh, Scottish philosophical thought was not remote from the German-speaking world. Um, a number of years, many years ago, oh my gosh, uh, one of my students who was going to do a um, PhD in Berlin, and as we always hope our students will say, Professor, is there anything I can do for you while I'm in Germany? You've done so much for me. You see? <laughs> Write that down. I said, which I rarely do, yes. See if you can find a German translation of Reed's inquiry that might have been available before Kant wrote the first edition of the first critique. And, damn it, if there wasn't one, it's the worst thing. It was anonymously published, wisely, by the translator. It's a horrible translation. I, and, and although the timing would have been all right, I, I, I have no reason to believe Kant ever got hold of this. C common sense is rendered as gemeine Menschenverstand, you know, like a common criminal. And uh, the, it, Maybe Kant did read this because he in castigating Reed, Oswald, and Beattie as if, as if what they came up with would serve as a criticism of Hume's sophisticated philosophy. He says, what does the common sense school do other than consult, quote, the wisdom of the herd? But you see, the common sense school is not, cons is not consulting the wisdom of the herd. It's not what everyone stands up and applauds. It's not what everyone claims for himself. It's what every one of us is under an obligation to take for granted. 
You can't prove the law of contradiction, for example, because all proof presupposes the validity of the law. You, you get that, right? Well, this is exactly what Reed is going to do with principles of common sense. Every mode of verification that you would seek to employ in an attempt to vindicate these principles presupposes their validity. And this gets very close to a Kantian transcendental argument, the necessary condition for something else to be the case. There's one more uh, feature of the critique that, um, that, that I want to bring to your attention before going into the details of what he means by uh, a transcendental argument. Kant very often takes recourse to legal metaphors. Uh, he speaks of the fair-minded judge. He speaks of the kind of evidence that would prevail upon the judgment of a good jury. He wants his arguments to be understood not as arguments in formal logic, but arguments in a, a transcendental logic, by which he means an evidentiary form of argument, given the fact, what, given this is the case, what are the necessary conditions absent which this couldn't possibly be the case? Now we do know that Kant early on, I mentioned to you at the beginning of lecture, that his interests reached law and politics and so forth. Kant was quite interested in, in legal cases involving boundary disputes. And at law, these are often referred to the, the papers that would be filed in behalf of a boundary dispute would be re, re, referred to as deduction schriften, deduction schriften. And to some extent, Kant's own argument is a species of deduction schriften, where you show the, the pedigree of property claims, the pedigree of cognitive claims, how far back you can date them, what, what conditions they satisfy, what is made possible by the fact that they are in place. And I think you would be well served reading the first critique as if it were something of a brief. A, uh, something of a legal brief and uh, in places something of a brief coupled with an oral an oral argument well is he just another dead uh, Prussian philosopher um, this is what we find in a contemporary a journal, a leading journal in, in physics. Quote, in physics it became quite clear in the last 30 years how the cognition of objects can be carried through. Surprisingly, the strategy which is applied in physics for the cognition of objects follows essentially the conceptual program formulated by Kant, even if the majority of physicists is not aware of this point. So I say this is not, not only did, in my judgment, Jonathan Bennett misidentify the body. Not only is the body not dead, but in some fields the body is, is very, much, very much alive. Um, what shall we say then about, about the overall aim? Well, I'm going to give you a puff now. I mean, this is almost a con should 
split the royalties with me. But I, I do want to say this much. First, contrary to a rumor that got started here four or five years ago, I am not a Kantian. <laughs> uh, um, I died in 322 BC with my friend uh, Aristotle, and I think the whole damn thing's been downhill ever since. But, um, but could there possibly be a more consequential philosophical project? A project that respects the perceptual and cognitive resources that we bring to bear on every knowledge claim we make, and at the same time does not lapse into a kind of psychology. A metaphysical analysis that, I say, respects the stamp of human cognition on all of its works, but does not lapse into subjectivity. A metaphysical project that would inform the sciences of just what it is that makes some of their undertakings necessarily successful in virtue of the manner in which we do cognize reality. Now, I'm going to leave you with a bee in the garden so that you understand that it is possible to maintain objectivity while respecting the perceptual uniqueness of the percipient. When I go into our garden at home in the right season, I admire yellow roses. We have yellow roses in the garden and they bloom beautifully. I don't do this alone because there's invariably a honeybee admiring or doing something with the same rose. As it happens, the peak spectral sensitivity of the normal human visual system is at 5500 angstroms, 550 millimicrons. You will call that yellow. The peak sensitivity in the visual system of the honeybee is in the ultraviolet. So the honeybee doesn't see anything yellow and I don't see anything ultraviolet. Are we both victims of some sort of hallucination? No. And once we start wading through Kant's arguments, we will see the manner in which the unique perceptual and cognitive principles we bring to bear on the situation can preserve the objectivity of the knowledge we claim about that situation even while granting that what we are bringing to bear is distinctly human. Capito? Well, then I shall see you in a week.